Hey everyone, this is your host, Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what is going on in European technology. My guest today is Philippe Poteri. Philippe is a partner at venture capital firm Axel and co-creator of one of my favorite yearly reports on European tech, the Euroscape. Philippe's career as an investor is nothing short of breathtaking. From hits like UiPath to DuckLib, he's one of the most renowned investors in Europe today, so it was an absolute pleasure to sit down with him and talk. Our conversation is a bit shorter than usual, but don't worry, Philippe delivers. In just 30 minutes, we covered a whole bunch. Luck and why everyone creates their own. What made Philippe realize, back in the early 2000s, that Europe was the place to be in for tech, the Euroscape report origin and how it evolved over time, the decentralization of European tech hubs and why that matters, what Philippe looks for in founders before he invests, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Philippe, thank you so much for taking the time to jump on the CTO podcast. How are you doing? No, you're welcome. I'm very, very happy to uh, to be here today. So thank you for, for having me. Yeah, so you often say that everyone creates uh, their own luck. Uh, and I agree. In a world where many think like life is a zero-sum game, personal responsibility is often being abdicated, how can we show everyone that you can create your own luck? Well, I, I think the, it starts with uh, passion and, and doing the work, the work and, and the things that you're passionate about. Uh, because, you know, I, I do believe that you succeed and you're good at things that you like. I mean, it's very hard to do something and be good at something that correspond at the image that you make of yourself, but is not truly what, what you really like. Uh, I mean, just one, one funny uh, anecdote around this. You know, I spent 10 years learning German at school and, you know, I went to Germany, spent summer there, tried, you know, could read books in German. But, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, just I, I didn't have the affinity and the love of that language that enabled me kind of to keep practicing. And so now there, there isn't much left. And, you know, on the other end, you know, I spent two years learning Italian at school at university. So I picked it much later, but I was used to spend my, you know, my holiday there. That's where my family is from. Uh, and then I was able, when I was McKinsey to work actually in Italy and be a lot more proficient in that language that I ever was in German and much faster. Uh, so, I mean, just a, a silly examples, but that, that kind of illustrates uh, the, the point. But then I think the second part that, that you, you, you mentioned is about, you know, creating your luck and creating your luck for me is about putting yourself enough, you know, in enough situations so that at some point something good is going to happen. Like if you stay at home and, and do nothing uh, or keep doing the same thing, you know, you can't, nothing, nothing's going to happen from that. But if you start to understand where things go and put yourself in these different places, then at some point it's likely that one should happen. And, and just to illustrate that, I mean, when I was, um, so I stayed kind of eight years at McKinsey. I was four years in Europe, then four years in Palo Alto. And, you know, after I got my Greek card, I was like, okay, now I've been in consulting enough. I want to do something else with, with my life. And I want to do something that combines kind of entrepreneurship and working with your younger companies. So, you know, I, I love at McKinsey consulting with companies. 
but I also wanted to do that kind of in the more entrepreneurship and, and smaller setting. And the second thing was technology. And the third thing was investing. So I, I love investing. And they say, well, let's, you know, that course seems to correspond to venture. So let's see if I can get a job in venture. And everyone was telling me, well, you know, you're, you're at McKinsey and, you know, typically people from consulting don't go directly into venture. It just doesn't work. I said, well, let me try. And so I, I spent actually a lot of time kind of reaching out to different people, talking to people in the Valley. And at some point I talked to one of the senior partner at, uh, at McKinsey who said, well, you know, I, I wish I could help you. You've done you know, great work for me. I, I really wish I could, but I don't know anyone who is in venture and, you know, it's not my world. So it's nothing can do uh, about that. And then three months later, he calls me and say, hey, you know, I was at an event and I met McKinsey alum who's, you know, Byron Dieter. He's looking for a software guy and I think you should speak to him. So, you know, you see, if, if you, and that's, you know, then I, you know, interviewed with Bessemer, it was a good fit and I joined and, and that's kind of how my story in venture started. But, you know, to me, that's what, uh, you know, I mean with creating your luck is like, you know, starting from, you know, doing some technology work based in the Paris office of McKinsey, you know, if you want at some point to do that kind of job, be at the heart of technology and, and then after that venture, you know, you need, to, you need to create it. So, you know, I moved to Silicon Valley because that was the heart of technology. It took me three years to get my transfer approved, but then I moved there. Then, you know, once you're in the heart of the valley, you know, you need to go, go and talk to a lot of people. And then at some point, you know, a person that you would expect the you know, least comes, comes back with a, with, with a good news. So that, that's kind of what I mean by creating your, your luck. You just try, always put yourself in a place where something good can happen. And if, if you do that enough times, then at some point, something has to go your way. Yeah, absolutely. The way I put it is the only thing you can control is the hours you put in, right? Like the rest might come or not, but at least start with that. Otherwise, like nothing will get done. Yeah, and, and do it in a smart way. Because, yeah. you know, doing 20 times the same thing is not getting, getting 20 times the experience. You see a lot of people say, yeah, we have got 15 years of experience, but for 15 years, they have done the same thing. And then that's not worth 15 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's also, uh, you know, something I learned. Totally, totally. So um, at Bessemer, so the story goes that you leading the crypto round back in 2010 uh, opened your eyes to what was going on in Europe. What did you think back, back then? Like what surprised you about what was going on in European tech? Well, you know, so it was interesting because I started venture in, in 2006. And in 2006, this was still a time in the Valley where, you know, the Valley was still recovering from the dot-com boom. So things were starting to, you know, I think to be more bullish and start, started to reaccelerate, but it was still the early days. And then, you know, in 2000, you know, 2008, like that's when it started to be a bit frothier, but then the market and, and it, which is it, when you say frothier, it's interesting because this was still the time where you were paying, you know, five, six times revenue for SaaS companies. But at the time, you know, we thought it was a uh, high price. And, uh, and then the kind of the financial crisis came uh, in 2008, then it took another 18 months for things to reaccelerate again. And that's when, you know, I kind of started to look at, um, you know, at, at Europe. Uh, that was the time of uh, the web, you know, the big conference, uh, the web conference in, in Paris that Louis Lemur organized. And there was starting to be some good buzz emerging from Europe. So I was going there regularly. 
ended up meeting, you know, Jean-Baptiste for, from Criteo, followed the companies, you know, for a year trying to find a way to, to invest. And finally, we, you know, this happened, you know, late 2009, early to 2010. And, and then I saw that, I mean, the company was doing very well. I remember at the time they were like 15 million in revenues, but they were tripling year over year. And it was like, wow, you know, there's some great things that are starting to happen in Europe, but no one is really looking at them. And that's when I got the, the call from, from, from Axel, you know, in mid 2011 or early 2011, I wasn't really looking at going back to Europe, but I still had in mind that something was happening there and doing it from the Valley was not the most convenient thing. So when I got the call, it to me, I knew I wanted to be on a global platform because you know, the kind of entrepreneur I like to work with and I wanted to back are people who are thinking globally and Axel at this global platform. You know, I wanted to be based in Europe because I, I knew to do European deals, you have to be based in Europe. And I love the team and the partners there. So jumped in mid 2011 and, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a wild ride. I mean, things are so different that they now today that they were, that they were at the time. Yeah, we've definitely come a long way since 2011. And you've been covering part of this difference, part of this growth with the Euroscape report. But before we dive into that, like, what's like the non-bullshit answer to, like, how did the Euroscape start? I think it was like 2015 or 2016? I think it was 20, 2016. And, um, um, you know, the, the way it started was... When I got, when I moved back to Europe in mid 2011, I mean, all my, a lot of my 80% of my work in, you know, at Bessemer was focused on cloud and SaaS, you know, starting from 2006, where my first blog, blog post was why I disagree with Tony Zingali on the future of cloud, right? Tony was the CEO of Mercury Interactive, which is like a big software company in the Valley. And he, I, I heard his speech at his keynote at conference where he was saying, you know, SaaS is a fad. And I'm like, I disagree with that. And, you know, I think as a first blog post getting into venture, it sounds like a good topic to address. So I've been a big believer in SaaS and cloud from, from, the, from the early days. Um, you know, at Bessemer, we worked with the team and developed, you know, all the MR, the CAC ratio, the, the kind of all, the, the new way to measure the performance of these SaaS companies, because at the time, everything was geared towards booking and, and software, uh, on-prem software, which was very, um, you know, very different. Uh, and we, we started to, you know, to write some, some, some white paper and produce some content and start to unite the, the community, the early community in SaaS. And then, so when I moved to Europe in mid 2011, there wasn't much happening in cloud. So a lot of my work in the early days was, you know, with marketplaces and consumer companies. So that, that's how I ended up on, on the board of, you know, Blabacar and Fiverr. And then in 2014, that's where things started to change a bit. And I made my first investment in a software company, which was PeopleDoc, uh, which then ended up being uh, acquired by Ultimate Software for $300 million. And, um, and then in 2015, I invested in Algolia and Doctolib. And, and this company started to do quite, quite well. And, and that's when I was like, okay, now, now things are really starting to, to happen in Europe. Like Europe can start to produce very interesting early stage companies. And, and I thought, well, we need, you know, we need to take stake of that. We need, to, we need to say it because no one knows about it and, and we need to unite it. We need to unite this community and gather this community the same way that, you know, we, we did that in, in 2006, 2007 in the US. And um, so that's what, you know, at the same, same time, 
uh, SaaS talk was, uh, you know, was starting with, uh, with Alex. And so we reached out, we, you know, decided to, you know, I, I did what I could to, to help him get this started. And I said, well, you know, if we do this conference, we have to do something around it. It was the year where, you know, Star Wars was, uh, you know, it was uh, the final uh, episode of the trilogy was, uh, was out. I don't know if it was a final or one of the last of the, the third trilogy. I said, okay, well, let's call it SaaS Wars, build around this, uh, these themes. And, uh, you know, and let's make it happen. And that's how we started the Euroscape in, in 2016. Sorry, it was a long answer, but I, I thought this was kind of needed to go back to the, the roots to properly answer it. Absolutely, absolutely. And we have time, so, so no worries. Um, what surprised you the most from like the difference between the 2016 report and the 2020 report? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's like, uh, you know, different worlds, literally, like, if you had asked me in 2016 where we would be, I think I would have been completely, I would have been completely wrong. I mean, if you look at in, in many ways, I mean, you know, you take that first, like in 2016, there was only a top hundred list. There wasn't even like a, a champions category. There were, you know, I think in 2016, there may have been like just one, one unicorn at the time <laughs> and, and that was it. And so, and if you looked at the, the top hundred companies in 2016 together, they had raised uh, 2.5 billion. So it's around $25 million per company. And, and if you look at, you know, the 2020, just the top hundred, they have raised 7.4 billion. And if you add to that, uh, the, the champions, then the total is 14.1 billion. So we went from like two and a half billion to 14.1 billion in the space. So that's six times more just in the space of four years. And on top of that, I mean, we have added the first European cloud Decacon with UiPath, which was valued north of 10 billion, uh, which was one of Axel's, you know, Series A investment. So, I mean, if you had, if you had told me 2016, you know, project what 2020, the, the 2020 Euroscape is going to look like. You know, I think I would have got it wrong. So much has happened and, and the momentum is still, is still building. I mean, if you look at just the past two weeks, I mean, what happened in the past two weeks? We had four new unicorns, you know, European cloud unicorns, four. And we had uh, a large M&A with uh, Instana, which is half a billion. I mean, that, that's kind of unprecedented. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I, I... Totally, totally. The the speed at, at which things are happening right now, it's it's hard to keep up. One of the most interesting things to me on the report is where things happen, right? So I think in 2016, most of the activity was in London, I think Berlin and, and Paris, like roughly like 60, 70% of and, the deals. And, and a bit in Tel Aviv as well. And, and Tel Aviv, yeah, yeah forgot about that one. But now things are a lot more distributed. And one thing you, you said you believe in is that Europe has no center of gravity. So like, yeah, you're in London, but you've invested in Romania, in France, in Israel and Germany. Why do you think that's happening? And how do you think COVID will affect this? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that, that's a good question. I mean, and, and what you're saying really, you know, we can see that in the way we have invested our funds, right? In the, the first, I mean, we've been in Europe for 20 years now. So the, the first fund, let's say, was invested from 2000 to 2005. And, and this fund was, I mean, if you look at the distribution uh, of the investment, they were mostly in the UK and Israel. 
you know, and then after that, you know, France and Germany and a bit the Nordics, but that was kind of uh, the way the ecosystems, I mean, the funds were, were deployed. And then if you look at uh, just the past uh, four years, I mean, just on the software side, we, we've made 35 investments in 20 different cities. So basically the ecosystem has evolved from, as you said, being, you know, Berlin, Paris, London, and Tel Aviv to being more than, you know, 20 cities across all the region. And that includes, you know, Spain, Portugal, uh, but also Eastern Europe. I mean, UiPath is from Bucharest and, and there's several great companies from Eastern Europe, from the, the Nordics. So basically what's happening right now is that Europe is evolving into a combination of 20 different hubs. And, and, and this explains why the growth has been really compounding because I mean, in the US, to some extent, I mean, 70% of the activity is in the valley and remains in the valley. And then there's a bit more happening outside of the, the valley in some, you know, a bit in Utah, some, you know, New York, of course, Boston, a bit Austin, uh, but it's still very Silicon Valley centric versus in Europe, it is not. And so instead of having just one big ecosystem growing, you have just a collection of hubs, which are becoming more and more interconnected. And I think that's where, you know, I think COVID has accelerated things because by making the work remote, it, it basically made it easier for companies to hire in these different hubs and be more distributed and benefit for, from more talent. And, and that's why I think the growth is compounding because when, when you have 20 hubs growing at the same times, you're growing much faster than if you only have one or two or three hubs. Right, right. And then when there is sort of no borders to hire talent from, because you can just do it remotely, then one of the biggest barriers to scaling, let's say, in Bucharest or whatever other city is, like that goes away. Yeah. And plus, there's been a lot of new, um, you know, collaboration tools that, that, you know, makes it m much easier. I mean, obviously you have Zoom, but you also have, you know, company like, um, you know, Miro, which is kind of the, the new whiteboard Hopin, which is one of you know our recent uh, you know Excel's unicorn doing virtual uh, virtual events. Um, so now with all that technology available, like it makes also the work you know a lot more uh, productive when you when you're remote. Totally, totally. You said a minute ago that back in 2014, 15, 16, uh, when like if you had to guess where Europe would be today in 2020, you would have been wrong. You wouldn't have been like ambitious enough, right? You would have missed. Uh, so thinking about the future, like, do you think Europe is ambitious enough? Like if you had to guess, let's say 2030. Well, I mean, I, I think if you, uh, the US is always a good point of comparison, right? You know, I think last year we were about a third I mean, if you look at the, the venture investments in software and cloud companies in Europe and Israel was about one third of the U.S. I think this year it was around nine billion, nine to 9.5 billion. It was around half of the U.S. So, I mean, I, you know, you draw this line and, you know, I think within, you know, two, three years max will be Europe will be the same size probably as, as the U.S. And so now the question is, where do you go from here, right? And, and I think it's I think it's going to grow bigger. My guess is that, uh, given the trajectory that we're we're seeing right now, I wouldn't be surprised if you know on, on the cloud front, 
Europe is actually a larger market than the US, you know, in five years or, you know, 10 years from now. So I'm going to switch lanes a bit. Some people have a couple of those career defining investments and you've had one almost every year or every couple of years. Uh, I can think of DocuSign, Algolia, Doctolib, Labacar, UiPath. So what's your day-to-day like to perform at such a high level? Well, <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, uh, obviously, I, I've been, you know, really fortunate to have the, the, the chance to, to meet with these founders and I've been lucky that they have, you know, agreed to, to, to work with, with me and, and Axel for, to help them on, on their journey. You know, I, I think it's, it's just, uh, for me, it's just part of liking what you do. And, and I've always, I mean, the, a lot of the companies you mentioned are, you know, this cloud and security company, which is what I'm passionate about. And, and I've been lucky that over the years, I've been able to kind of meet with these companies and be able to invest in, in, in these companies. So, you know, what, what I do on, on a day-to-day basis is, you know, part of my time is working with the, the companies I've invested in. I, I would say, you know, that's probably 20 to 30% of the time. I think it depends, you know, sometimes it's more active when the, you know, quarterly board season approaches or when a big event happens with a company, uh, sometimes it's a bit less. You know, part of the, the job is uh, kind of managing the firm. I think we, uh, you know, we're, we're a partnership, so it's distributed management, but, you know, we have, we have a team of uh, uh, 50, uh, you know, 45 people in, in Europe and, you know, larger broadly that, uh, so we're six partners in Europe. So, you know, like any company, we need to, we need to manage our business. And, and then it's about, you know, finding new investments. And for that, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of relationship, a lot of, you know, preparing mind, what we call preparing mind, which is basically we try to develop our own thesis on the sector. So we'll, we'll kind of map on a global basis. And a lot of these efforts are global, you know, all the companies in a given space and try to understand what it takes to, to win in that space and, uh, and kind of speak to a lot of companies and pick the one we think are the best position to, to win in that space. Uh, we're doing a lot uh, more data uh, work on the, the data front. And, uh, you know, trying to connect as, as, as many data sources as we can to our CRM and, and build some, um, some intelligence to kind of surface these opportunities um, as well. And, um, you know, and then we have, the, you know, on the relationship side, we have uh, uh, a team of people who are also working on, you know, identifying the talents early in the, in the ecosystem to make sure that we, we can get first to, to this, these great founding teams. What about self-improvement, like outside work? I'm, I'm curious, how do you consume information? How do you pick what you read? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's uh, so I, I've got a couple of uh, uh, newsletters that I do like to read uh, every day. I think it's uh, even more uh, important uh, during this period where things are changing, uh, changing pretty fast. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's, see, it's as important to know what's happening outside of tech these days. That's what's happening in tech. So that, that's one, one side, which is more the, the day-to-day information. So I, you know, spent a lot of time on, you know, the FT, you know, tech crunch, I mean, all the typical, you know, tech, uh, um, blogs and, um, you know, on top of that, I, you know, more out, outside when I, when I've, you know, free time is reading books about, of 
entrepreneurship, the big companies like foundational companies, like, you know, the Google, the Amazon, the Facebooks, and see how, how these founders were thinking, like how, you know, how, how, how did they set about the, the, their vision and journey to get where they are? Uh, and, and then try to translate that in terms of, you know, what does this mean for, you know, kind of the, the company that I'm working with and, and how to make sure you can set the, the right level of, of ambition. I mean, to me, this is, this is what, you know, what I'm trying to do in terms of, you know, absorbing all the information in the experience. But the, there's, you know, one thing I've learned in this job is that, you know, you're as good as your last deal. Um, so <laughs> it's not about, well, great, you know, I've done several investments which have succeeded. It's about, it's about the next one. And, it, and it's about how you make sure the next one, you know, can be even better, even bigger, have a bigger impact on, on, on the world. And, and to me, it feels like every time you do a deal, you start from scratch, right? Because, you know, past has never been a prediction of the future in terms of investments. Like, you know, it's like the, if you take an analogy with, you know, stocks, like it's not because the stock has been growing like crazy in the past year that it's going to go crazy in the next year. And I think about, you know, about this every time I'm investing, but my past investment tells me nothing about the new investment I'm doing. And every time I'm doing a new investment, it's like it was the first one. And you have to approach it with, you know, the, the same rigor, the same humility, and, and you have to try and understand why you're wrong, right? Because, you know, it's by answering all the question of, you know, how, well, what can go wrong? Like, what, what are you missing? What are you not seeing? What are the things that, you know, you don't know? I mean, that's what kind of push it, pushes you in your in your thinking about the investment, I mean that that's kind of how I, I think about it. You know, one, one other aspect of it because it, it's also about understanding what you don't know, but it's also about pushing yourself, and, and that's I, I think something that's you know probably the most important. If I if I look at some of the deal that I passed on, which I should have done, is because I was not creative enough in thinking about what things can become. So on, on one hand, you have to to understand what are the risks, but on the other hand, you have to really push yourself in terms of thinking, you know, it's not about what the company does today. It's like, what about the company could do in five years, seven years from now and, 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 and see what you have today at the starting point and say, well, if, what can be the vision here? What, what is the, really the, the ambition? And that's where, you know, spending time with the entrepreneur, understanding where they want uh, to go, and then you can make your opinion whether you think this is this is realistic, whether there's enough potential there. Yeah. Okay. And you can totally say no to this, but can you provide an example of one of those sort of companies that you missed that you sort of didn't see? I mean, I, I wish there was only uh, you know, I wish there was uh, only one, but you know, <laughs> if, you know, if if I look at you know between. 2007 and, and 2010, I would say pretty much all the, like all the companies, like I pass on a lot of the companies that went public afterwards, like, you know, the Zwara, the Coupa, and, and every time, like, you know, the company we picked at the time did very well, but if we had, you know, lower the bar and invested a lot more, I think we would have a lot more success. I mean, some failure, but a lot more success. So, I mean, Zora is a good example. You know, I think at, at the time, I think we're probably too too focused on some of the, the productivity metric and growth rate. And I think, you know, didn't see the fact that 
this could be, I mean, that, you know, SaaS was taking over the world. Like there will need the, the, all the billing and recurring billing will be, you know, much bigger. I mean, you have picture yourself, like I think Zora was probably 2009, if I remember well, something that there was no very little subscription businesses at the time. And so it was hard to say, well, how, how big is that going to be? But now you look at it today, so of course, subscription is very big, right? So I think it's all about not looking too much at what the numbers are saying today, but just imagining where this could go and what are the underlying trends and, and make sure that you have a viable path there, right? Yeah, everything's obvious in hindsight, right? In Argentina, we have this saying that is like, everything's obvious with Monday's newspaper. <laughs> so uh, how do you deal with regret as an investor? Just fold the these deals, I guess. But in what sense? In, in the sense of regretting not to invest in an investment? Or? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I think first you're, you're happy for the company. Like every time <laughs> I'm wrong on a company, I'm very happy for the founders. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the founders, you know, they're giving everything to their company. And even if we decide not to succeed, like I always want them to succeed because, you know, what they do is so hard and I just hope I'm wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, how I deal with regret, I mean, I, I just try to, you know, to learn from it and see, you know, if I didn't invest in a company that, you know, end up being successful, I try to understand what are, what were the elements in my decision process that made me not invest. And, uh, you know, and try to see how I can correct this cursor, you know, for the, the next investments and make sure that you don't do twice the same mistakes. Yeah. What do, what do you look for in founders when you invest? The first thing I, I'm, I'm looking for is like founders who are mission driven and passionate about their mission and, and what they want to, what they want to achieve. Because at the end of the day, I was saying building a business is something that is very hard, requires a, lo a lot of time, hard work and dedication. And, and this is not about, oh, I want to build a big business. It's about what do you want, what mission do you want to achieve? I mean, if you look at, you know, Daniel Dines, uh, the CEO of UiPath, I mean, his vision was like, there are so many things people do that, you know, that is boring. Uh, and let's make sure we can take that off them. Right. And make sure and his vision is like, I want one software robot for every person so that every person just focuses on what they like to do when they work. And that's that's what was driving him. And, and to me, it was like when I saw his drive, his commitments to that vision. And obviously, in a, you know, in the big scheme of things it makes you know a lot of sense. And it was uh, the right time with AI and automation, you know, all the technologies to enable this were coming together. You know that that's that's what the first thing I'm I'm looking for this you know kind of this this passion and also this level of ambition, you know to to just transform the part of the one part of the world. I mean, if you look at the this you know Stan, the CEO of Doctor Lib, he was he was all about the transformation of healthcare. I mean, what he wanted to do is just make healthcare digital, make it more efficient. And, you know, one step at a time. And it started with, you know, simple online booking system, you know, evolving video conference, which obviously ended up being very critical in the, in the past year. And now it keeps building, you know, the product on top of it. So to me, that's one thing, this passion and vision. The second thing is make sure that, you know, this addresses a very large market. Because if you want to build a company, you need to make sure that the vision addresses a large market, not the current product. 
because you know, for Dr. Lib, it would have been very easy to say, well, you know what, your current product is you're selling a booking systems in, you know, just in France, you know, maybe that's a 600 million euro market and that's it. That's a small market. So I'm sorry, you have a big vision, but I'm not going to invest. But if you say the vision is like, I want to, you know, look at healthcare spending, the IT spending as percent of healthcare spending in Europe, compare that to the US, look at the gap. And that's the gap I want to fill. And suddenly your market goes from half a billion to like tens of billions. So that's kind of how, you know, how, how you need to think about things, not about what you do today, but what this could be with the right execution and drive and make sure that the path to go there is, you know, is, is realistic. So, yeah, so, you know, founder passion, market size, and then obviously looking at kind of the, the business metrics, execution, quality of the team, ability of the founders to hire all the, the different ingredients that are more, more traditional. Part of what we've been discussing is sort of investing and building companies is imagining this future that some people don't agree with yet, right? Do you have any belief right now that the world hasn't caught up on yet? Like think about like you were saying about like the importance of cloud eight or 10 years ago, right? So what are the areas that are going to be as big? That's one way to put it. Like uh, that's one way to rephrase it. I think so. I mean, just stepping back and looking overall, I think what COVID told us, I think this year is that there's going to be a dramatic change in the way people think about healthcare, I think, going forward. And, and yeah, I think the, the investments into healthcare, the investment into new technology, I mean, we're seeing that the vaccines that, you know, right now seems to be ready for approval are using completely different technology. So everything around, you know, the, the DNA, RNA type of technology, and I'm not a specialist in that area, but anything connected to, to gene and, and how we can use gene to predict, you know, disease or cure disease by playing with the gene. I mean, there's just so much happening in that space that I think this is going to be a big part of, of our future. I do think that, you know, on, on the part that I know the, the most is like, on the automation side, and we're going to see a lot more automation everywhere in the enterprise, but also for the, the consumers with AI playing a very important role. I think to some extent AI, the adoption of AI right now is really at, at its uh, infancy and, and we'll see that really, uh, really accelerating in, um, you know, in, in the coming years. So if you ask me what are what are the two things that are really going to change the world in the next, you know, 10 years, 15 years? I would, I would say these are, are the, the two areas. That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Philippe. It's been a pleasure. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the CTL podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.